I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Alice Su, The Economist's Senior China Correspondent. I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, our Beijing bureau chief. Hello, Alice. This week, we're asking, what does the world need from the US-China relationship? Xi Jinping and Joe Biden met face-to-face for the first time as national leaders at the G20 summit in Bali. We'll be talking to a former American diplomat who's been in the room many times with Xi and Biden before, He'll help us understand what was really going on when they met in person again. And in Beijing, I went to meet a scholar of American studies at one of China's top universities. He's someone whose videos have a big social media following. We'll also hear how leaders around the region are responding to the Xi Biden meeting. Our colleague Dominic Ziegler, who writes The Economist's Asia column, Banyan, will help us with that. This is Drum Tower from The Economist. David, hello. Nice to see you again. Hello. Good to see you, if only online. How was your week? Well, we're worrying about lockdowns again, and I managed to uh, have an epic fail because the cool thing here is to say that you don't need to stock up with food in case it's locked down because Beijing is so important. Uh, that you can always trust the food. But I cracked and I went on Taobao, the, the app that you will remember well, the shopping for everything app. And I ordered, because I am British, facing a lockdown, I ordered a case of 24 cans of Heinz baked beans. And <laughs> you remember how Taobao works? I watched that little lorry uh-huh. driving up the map of China with my beans. Mm-hmm. And then it got to the outskirts of Beijing. And then this warning message appeared and said, due to the epidemic circumstances, we cannot deliver these beans. And then it turned around. Oh, no. And my beans are back in the warehouse. Oh, no. Where's the warehouse? It's in Shanghai. So I managed to humiliate myself with a failure of nerve and I don't have the beans. Oh, no, I'm sorry to hear about that. You can just kind of go around your neighborhood with a big bag and, and take I can the empty beans. the shelves of my yeah, local store. Yeah, just sweep yeah. all the Heinz yeah. baked beans. <laughs> so Alice, how's, uh, how's life in Taipei? It's quite exciting, actually, because we're having local elections and I've never been in Taiwan during election season. Last night, I finished working and I stepped out of my apartment to get dinner and the president of Taiwan was downstairs. <laughs> tsai Ing-wen was in a little park close to my apartment building holding a rally. I think to me it was really shocking because also, you know, we've just come away from covering the 20th Party Congress and we've seen all the drama and the show and the power of what happens in China. And then here we just have the president like standing in a park. She was talking to a bunch of just ordinary people sitting on little plastic stools. And a few things struck me about it. I mean, one was that it was just so down to earth. She kind of has this school teacher vibe almost. She's like, okay, guys, what are we going to do? And then they're like, we're going to vote. And then she says, yeah, and let's all get together to to vote. Okay. And she kind of says, how? And everyone goes, how? She's like, 
Topio. <laughs> it was just um, it's very interesting for me to watch. Very refreshing and certainly very different from how politics works across the street. But let's get to our topic. Xi and Biden finally met in Bali, and it was surprisingly friendly. You know, we've all been reporting on how terrible the U.S.-China relationship is, and how tensions are the highest they've been in years. And yet, when the summit finally happened, we saw Biden slapping Xi on the back. We saw these big smiles printed in the People's Daily, and. To my surprise, there were actually some positive takeaways from the meeting. There was a commitment to resume high-level dialogue on issues like climate change and the global economy. So, in some ways, it was surprisingly positive. But it also wasn't all kumbaya, right, David? That's right. There were some structural problems that couldn't be hidden, right? So,、uh, if you're going to be less optimistic, we saw some pretty tough language on Taiwan, certainly from Xi Jinping, setting out that the issue of Taiwan, the self-governing. Democratic island that China claims for its own—that that is the very core of China's core interests—and that's because China feels that America has been pushing the envelope on Taiwan all year, particularly things like the visit of the Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. And even beneath the smiles, we saw you know differences on things like the language on Ukraine, whether President Xi was willing to really endorse an American criticism of some of those nuclear threats from the Russian leader. But I thought what was fascinating was how similar. Some of the language was from both men, and both she and Biden made it absolutely clear that they have heard calls from the region and really the whole world to get this relationship back on track, because the global order is in fragile shape and does not need the two most powerful countries in the world squabbling like this. That's right. Let's listen to the actual words that Xi and Biden spoke. So here's what Xi Jinping said. The world expects that China and the United States will properly handle the relationship. And now let's listen to Joe Biden. The world expects, I believe, China and the United States to play key roles in addressing global challenges from climate、uh, changes to food insecurity, and、uh, for us to be able to work together, the United States stands ready to do just that. Work with you if that's what you desire. It's particularly fascinating, right? That Joe Biden talks about climate change and food insecurity, and that is a nod to the fact that this isn't just a bilateral meeting between two countries. This was on the sidelines of a big multinational summit, and plenty of the other leaders in Bali have real problems with angry publics facing rising food prices, rising energy prices, and worried about climate change. You know, drowning their countries. And so, these two men, the most powerful men in the world, they know that the rest of the world is. Putting on the pressure to get this relationship back on track, and they cannot be seen to ignore that pressure. So that's what's behind those big smiles. But do you think that this is a genuine moment where the two sides have decided it's time to cooperate, or is this more performative, just to reassure the rest of the world? It's definitely at least a calculation. And so I went to talk to Wang Yong. He's a professor at Peking University, Beida. Uh, one of the best schools in China. He's director of the Center for American Studies. He's interesting. So on the side, he also makes videos on international relations on social media, and he has nearly a, one and a half million followers on Chinese social media. When we met, we met in this、uh, tea house in a hotel near Beijing University campus because just, you can't get into the campus now because of COVID. So you have to meet just outside. Now he said it's too optimistic to call the meeting a reset. I think that the United States, U.S. policy toward China, and the U.S. that is the containment, you、uh, know, is decoupling, right? All these things、uh, together has made the Chinese leaders, the leadership, to make such a 
a very pessimistic assessment about the international environment uh, in the years ahead. They even call for uh, to be preparing for a worst-case scenario, so-called the dangerous storm. In Chinese, Jin Tao Hai Lang. But you know what was fascinating? He named the leaders of Asian countries that expect the two leaders to have a successful summit. The president of Indonesia made it very clear: the ASEAN, the Southeast Asia, don't want to be a proxy of major power. They want U.S.-China to the big giants to talk to each other, to have stable relations. Right. So as did Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong of Singapore, also have the similar view. Has called for U.S.-China talk to each other, stabilize the relationship. The region don't want to take sides. You know, either with China or the United States. Okay, that is a call. Very important. Okay, I think the U.S.-China leaders' meetings has some of the echoes and response properly to the wishes of international community, especially the region. And that made me think of a question, which is: You make the good point, Alice. You know, is this performative or is this sincere? I asked Wang Yong. Is it now, in fact, that the U.S.-China competition is now in part a contest for the hearts and minds of other countries around the world? Yes, I think that is、uh, some kind of new game、uh, between U.S. and China. Well, that resonates with what I've been reading from our colleagues reporting from all around Asia, and in particular, our Banyan columnist. Dom Ziegler was in Southeast Asia just before the summit. He's now in Tokyo, and he's been writing about what Asian leaders want from the U.S.-China relationship. Hello, Alice. Hi, David. Hello, Dom. It's great to have you with us. Dom, I think I last saw you in Hong Kong. Perhaps it was a long time ago. There were protests in Hong Kong at the time, and there wasn't even a national security law. I mean, I'm quite excited to hear what Dom thinks about this because you have been traveling around Asia both before and after the summit, talking to the same leaders of these Southeast Asian countries. Do you think there is this hearts and minds competition going on, and do you think that's what China was responding to? Southeast Asia has been, still is, slightly less so now, has been extremely worried about the deterioration in relations between the U.S. and China, and in particular, tensions over Taiwan. They're under no illusions about Chinese assertiveness, but I have to say that in recent weeks it's been more American rhetoric over Taiwan. It's been the tech war against China that has been alarming them. And how do they want the U.S.-China relationship to change? The Biden administration's draconian efforts to stop Chinese companies benefiting from American technology have consequences for Southeast Asian economies, and that's one concern. And that's probably. Where the greatest concern about being forced to take sides, you know, resides, because it's a question of having to choose which set of supply chains you pin your future to, and that makes Southeast Asia extremely uncomfortable. Tom, can I ask you about how you balance sort of not just Southeast Asia, but also you're in Japan right now, the tension between what they want for the security of the region and their sort of economic development? Because you know sometimes these seem to go in two different directions, right? I mean, I remember. When I used to be in Washington talking to a Pentagon commander who just had a meeting with someone from Asia, and he said that the basic message on security was very simple: it was, "Don't leave us alone with the Chinese, but don't start anything." And that was basically the kind of the desire for the American posture. But 
because you now have the American government under Joe Biden leaning on friends like Japan not to sell advanced semiconductors or equipment to China, kind of security and economics are blending into each other and that's getting harder. How would you describe the mood in Asia when Asian countries say that they don't want to have to choose? Do they mean something different when they're thinking about their security interests and when they're thinking about their economic interests? Southeast Asia certainly says it doesn't want to choose. It doesn't want the US to be absent. Uh, On the contrary, um, my sense is that whilst having this giant neighbour to the north is beneficial in terms of trade, investment, prosperity, it comes with all sorts of problems. And there are very few countries that deny those problems, the sense of Chinese assertiveness in the South China Sea, environmental issues that come with Belt and Road projects, and so on and so on. The American presence in itself, the security presence, is not a concern of most Southeast Asian leaders. On the contrary, they want it to be there. But they have two worries about the US security presence. One is that it's not anchored with any sort of economic engagement of any note. And so the reason why they worry about that is not so much that they want American investment, or they do, more importantly, they want access to American markets. But really importantly there, they want the assurance that the US is going to stick around, that the US is reliable, not unreliable, and that with economic engagement, that might be the case. Um, And then at the other end of the spectrum, they absolutely do worry that the US will pick a fight with China and will then, if if it loses that fight, it'll go back home. It can go back home, but countries in the region have no option. Their whole basis, all their dreams for future prosperity would be shattered by a conflict over Taiwan. As President Jokowi said to our editor-in-chief last week in Jakarta, he said he was very, very worried about a conflict over Taiwan. And this is a guy who thinks pretty much, you know, apart from this week when he was host in Bali, he thinks pretty much only about domestic issues or about the consequences of global forces for him domestically at home. And his concern over a war in Taiwan is precisely that the whole basis upon which he is building Indonesia's future prosperity would be shattered. So it sounds like what you're saying is a lot of Asian countries, they don't see the same kind of security concerns that, you know, the U.S. does in this involvement with Chinese tech. At the same time, they're worried about America pushing too hard and aggravating conflict with China. So if you wrap all that together, does that amount to a desire to see America backing away from the region and seeing more of, you know, Asia for Asians, as Chinese diplomats like to say? Uh, I don't think it means that. I don't think that's what people in the region want. They want the US to stay, but they don't want it to be so uh, black and white and such a titanic struggle between the two superpowers. And I think that here, there's a very interesting trend underway. I mean, we've seen, and this is partly because America is thought by its friends not to be reliable. We've seen countries coming together in security terms. We've seen the Quad with Australia, Japan, India and the US. We've seen AUKUS with the US, um, Australia and, and the UK. But we've also seen, and I think this has been less observed, we've seen what could be maybe termed the global West has become more prominent this year in Asia. That's to say countries that object to President Vladimir Putin's aggression in Ukraine and object to Chinese assertiveness in East and Southeast Asia. And, you know, the global West certainly includes Australia and New Zealand. Japan was a founding member of the G7, but it also includes South Korea, Taiwan and Singapore. And here's a grouping that is starting to 
be part of a pushback against Chinese assertiveness. And it may also be, in a way, evidence of a multipolar world, in at least in this part of the globe. And that's something that uh, President Xi Jinping has been calling for for a long time. He means, I think, by a multipolar world, the decline of the US. But by this definition of my slightly tentative uh, theory, actually, it means more participants in the global West doing more in our part of the world. So how much relief are you sensing after this first face-to-face meeting between Xi and Biden? And how much kind of anxiety are you sensing that this is just the calm before the storm? I would have liked to have sensed a lot more relief. I think that the general feeling, and certainly in Tokyo, is that this has solved nothing, but it's lowered the temperature, which is far better than nothing, but it doesn't fundamentally alter things. And that's why there's some very interesting discussions taking place, certainly here in Tokyo. Even some Americans acknowledge that when it comes to diplomacy in the region, America sucks. Everything is kind of black and white, and there's lots of proselytizing about democracy and human rights. Now, Japan shares exactly the same analysis as the US does about China's trajectory. It's hawkish about China. But no, it doesn't go out of its way to pick fights. And it says, well, actually, we can kind of, as a sort of outpost of the West in the region, we have a role to play to stop big chunks of the region falling into the kind of China-Russia camp. Dom, I've been very struck. I've been talking to a lot of diplomats here in Beijing about this summit. And one of the phrases that surprised me was this idea of a charm offensive, that if you look at the way that China is actually lowering the temperature in its relations with Japan, uh, the fact that Xi Jinping was willing to have a meeting with the Australian prime minister, even though Australia hasn't groveled and apologised since they began that real argument that began during the pandemic and saw you know Chinese sanctions on Australian trade, And there is a question that people ask, which is, is this because the economy is not doing so well in China and China's been picking a lot of fights? And in some ways, Xi Jinping realises that it's time to put out some of these fires and and start a bit of a charm offensive. Does that come up in conversations around Asia? It has come up. It's come up two or three times just in the the last few days, but I expect it to crop up more. Uh, You know, that's certainly a conclusion that people I've spoken to are coming to, that Whilst it's very welcome, this charm offensive, this competition for hearts and minds, it's motivated more by weakness than by strength. China still badly needs what Australia has got to sell, maybe not Shiraz, but it needs the iron ore and the coal. So yes, that's definitely what people in the region are thinking. You can read Dom's reporting on the G20 and his regular column on Asia in The Economist. Subscribe at economist.com slash drum offer. That's where you can find the best introductory rate. We'll be back in a moment to talk to Daniel Russell. He's at the Asia Society Policy Institute in New York, but he was Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs. And before that, he was President Barack Obama's top advisor on Asia. He spent hours with Xi Jinping in China in 2011 with the then Vice President Joe Biden, who'd been sent to get to know Xi Jinping. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to Drum Tower. We just heard the view from Asia, where for a long time there was this neat idea that everyone's economic partner was China, and they could have the USA as a security partner. And we just heard from Dominic that those neat dividing lines are getting very messy. But beyond Asia, let's not forget that there is still a fundamental problem with China and America, a breakdown in trust that is not going to be easy to fix. Xi and Biden had a lot more flexibility to act in this meeting in Bali because they came fresh from moments that demonstrated domestic political strength, right? Xi had just finished the 20th Party Congress. Biden came amid U.S. midterms where the Democrats did better than expected. But let's not forget that just a few years ago, Biden had to defend himself against charges that, you know, he and Xi Jinping were old friends and they were close buddies. Here he is in February 2020. Would you allow Chinese firms to build critical U.S. infrastructure? No, I would not. And I spent more time with Xi Jinping than any world leader had by the time we left office. This is a guy who is, has, doesn't have a Democratic with a small d bone in his body. This is a guy who is a thug who, in fact, has a million Uyghurs in reconstruction camps, meaning concentration camps. This is the guy who you see what's happening right now. Well, to help us work out how all this goes from here, we are extremely lucky. We are able to call up someone who is in the room with Xi and Biden before, in small groups and in summits, uh, Danny Russell. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. How did you read these interactions? You know, what was your read on, on what happened at the summit? There's a difference and there's some degree of intersection between the personal relationship and the relationship between the two nations and the two governments. On a personal level, there really is something there. They have gotten to know each other Joe Biden and Xi Jinping prior to either one of them becoming the actual head of government, head of state. They're both pretty adroit politicians, and they created something, a relationship. Now, we should have no illusions. On the one hand, you've got a hard-bitten Marxist-Leninist authoritarian. On the other, you have a fervent Democrat and a true believer in the power of the United States. They're both patriots, if not nationalists. So it's not a romantic connection. And they're not going to make decisions in their capacity as the national leaders purely out of friendship. But this shows that relationships matter. And I think in this case, we see that to some extent, kind of the magic work that they connected They spent a reasonable amount of time talking to each other, listening to each other. You know, going in, let's remember, I mean, it's not that the world has changed, but there was a sense that the U.S. and China were at each other's throats, that they were in free fall. And I, I myself, and I think others, pinned some degree of hope to the personal relationship that hopefully is going to be borne out. I don't think we saw a fundamental course correction in overall U.S.-China relations in Bali. This was, as my uncle used to say, better than a punch in the face. But it hasn't changed the basic geometry of the U.S.-China relationship. What about 
these two men that you've seen over the years might have helped them build trust where the two countries don't trust each other? Good question. Well, certainly, I think the fact that before they had taken on the responsibilities of leadership, that they had a chance to talk, to get to know each other, is a very important factor. And, you know, in 2011 and 2012, when Xi Jinping and Biden spent time together, and they had a lot of time together, they, number one, had the opportunity to really listen to the other side, explore what the other's thinking was, and to ask these kinds of open-ended questions. Secondly, remember, Xi Jinping was in the wings waiting to take over the job of steering China, and he had no peers. There was no one really that I think he could safely turn to to ask some pretty basic questions like, how does this work? And what does it feel like? And what do you do when this happens? And so on. I don't want to overstate it. The questions that he asked were more subtle than that. But I think that was partly the spirit in which he engaged with Biden. Here's someone, a veteran of government, a major power with a huge wealth of experience. And he wanted to know more about how the U.S. system works. He wanted to know more about how decision-making occurs in the White House. He wanted to sort of see through the eyes of a veteran because he had clearly some trepidation about the enterprise he was about to embark on. Now, that's a unique set of circumstances. Just in terms of their own personalities, I think that they're both quite mature as leaders. They are convinced of the greatness of their respective nations. And therefore, they both bring a sense of, I think, innate respect towards the other, notwithstanding all of the hostility, suspicion, struggle, threat that garlands the way that they talk and the way that they make policies about the other. The, the meeting we saw in Bali was very formal. And you had this team on either side of a big table and a lot of flowers in between them. How is that so different from a Zoom meeting? What is it about getting two leaders in a room that actually makes a difference? Leaders are, are human, all too human. I think it's really simply a matter of kind of human physics. Uh, the experience of engaging in person adds an extra dimension to a conversation. One level, it's as simple as that. But I think that the bigger point, David, is that there's a conceit that the world is driven by these structural forces that are irresistible, that the Thucydides trap and determinism can predict the future. And the flaw in these structuralist theories is simply that human beings aren't billiard balls, you know, they don't go in a straight line. And there's no question that there are tremendously powerful structural forces that leaders and governments can be pushed by very, very strong tailwinds or headwinds. But at the same time, they can be overridden by people, by humans, by leaders. So I, in my 
33 years of diplomatic experience, came to think more and more of international relations and of diplomacy as a kind of casino gambling, right? And that a good policymaker is like a card counter uh, playing blackjack in Las Vegas. Little factors can improve your odds. And improving the odds even slightly can over time yield important payoffs, make the difference between coming out ahead and falling behind. So in the case of Biden and Xi Jinping, knowing your counterpart, knowing your interlocutor, and knowing them fairly well, notwithstanding the, the gap in time in which there have been no meetings, that makes a difference. Being together in a room, that makes a difference. May not be that dramatic, but particularly in relationships as consequential as that of the relationship between the presidents of the U.S. and China, every little bit matters. You said, you know, we shouldn't be so shocked that she acts like a human. <laughs> I just have to say, as a reporter covering China, it's just so rare for us to get these moments. And that's why we're, we're so hungry to know more about what is he really like when the media is not watching. Well, um, a high-level summit is a three-act play. So it depends on which act you're in, what kind of language you can expect from the Chinese sides. Now, Biden is someone who is very, very personal in his meetings. He, he relates issues to real life, to his life. And so, you know, his response to something that Xi Jinping has laid out will be, it'll be an anecdote, right? It'll be a reference to something that his sainted mother used to tell me, or it will be a quote uh, often very confusing quote from an Irish poet or something like that. Xi Jinping, for his part, will at times invoke his own Chinese poet or formulas from history, more likely to be something that a Chinese leader said or that Mao Zedong and, or Zhou Enlai and Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger said or that, you know, that kind of stuff. What did you make of the fact that both leaders used really similar language about understanding that the world was very concerned about the bad state of this relationship, that they have a duty to the kind of the world and to Asia? Is that different from how things used to be when this really was just about, you know, the US and China getting on? Is there some real sense in which the world is actually concerned about a fraying global order and is pretty annoyed at the US and China not talking, not getting on at all? Was, are those pressures real on those two leaders, do you think? Well, the angst on the part of people and governments around the world is real. The degree to which it impacts Xi Jinping himself, Joe Biden himself, is hard to measure. But look, both of these two leaders have just run the gantlet of foreign meetings you know, multilateral meetings, Xi Jinping first in Samarkand and then in the G20, Biden at the ASEAN summit, the East Asia summit, then the G20, plus the whole host of bilateral meetings that they've had in recent weeks and in Biden's case over the months, in which their foreign counterparts have essentially said, 
the same kind of two basic messages to each of them, which is, number one, we expect you and the other to manage your relationship responsibly. We would prefer that you didn't blow up planet Earth. And number two, you should be working on the global problems, not exacerbating them, right? We're not looking to you to make these things worse. You are the two largest emitters of carbon in the world. You are the two largest economies. Whatever the problem is, we want and expect you both to be working on them. So let's see a little bit of that before you demand that we align with you or, or the other. The meeting and the engagement between the U.S. and China is happening at a moment when blocks are beginning to coalesce around Washington, around Beijing. Now, some level, that's nothing new. But I think that what's new is that the Chinese have decided to stop carping about forming cliques and blocks and, and get going forming their own. <laughs> and they're going at it with great vigor. So... Each side wants to gain the high ground, right? Each side wants to maximize support to recruit followers from among a world full of fence sitters. So they are casting themselves as the responsible party. Can I cast this forward finally to where we go from this summit? How do things in the US-China relationship get better anytime soon? Or actually, is the outlook pretty stormy? Well, we know from Xi Jinping's work report to the 20th Party Congress that China is preparing to struggle, that China is adrift in a turbulent sea with high waves and strong winds, right? I mean... And violent storms. I think he... he yeah, violent storms is... Violent storms, too, yeah. right. Yeah. So he's pretty explicit about that. And from the US side, Biden has made no secret, whether it's in his own statements or in the national security strategy that the U.S. faces tremendous challenges from China. There's every reason to expect continued turbulence in the short term and in the, the midterm. But what I go back to is the dynamic between the U.S. and China, where we have convinced ourselves that the other is out to get us that the other is fundamentally hostile. It engenders a sense of incompatibility, of zero-sum struggle, as the Chinese call it, competition, as the Americans call it, that's not entirely mistaken in terms of the kind of geopolitical dynamics, but is a mindset that isn't going to help solve problems. Well, Danny Russell, thank you so, so much. It's a real privilege to speak to someone who's worked on this and thought about this stuff as long as you have. So we are really extremely grateful. I hope at some point I get to see you guys in person somewhere. Take care. Bye-bye. That was really fascinating. I mean, for me, I think I just really enjoyed imagining how these C. Biden meetings play out behind the scenes. One of the great paradoxes of covering the US-China relationship, which I've done for more years than I care to think about, really, is even when these countries are getting on incredibly badly, the Americans have access to Chinese leaders that no one else has. I mean, it's amazing here in Beijing. You know, you talk to kind of European ambassadors and they are scrambling to see a kind of vice minister for this or that. The Americans, even when things 
are terrible. They just kind of walk straight in and see the top guys. And so there is a sense that there's always a kind of air of history and historical forces about these meetings, even when things are pretty grim. I guess, Alice, that's the final takeaway from this summit, right? That even though these two leaders know that really bad storms could be ahead, they at least understand that they need to keep listening to each other. And on a happier note, uh, that is how we hope to run this podcast. And we are so happy to have already heard from so many listeners and hear some of your ideas for future episodes. We'd love to hear more of those ideas as well as anything we haven't considered or questions that you have about China. So if you have something to say, record a voice note or write a message and send it via email to drum at economist.com. We also have a Drumtower newsletter and you can sign up for that at economist.com slash drum newsletter. And in the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more Drum Tower next week. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore, who produced this episode with Barclay Brown. Our sound engineer is Wei Dong Lin. Music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producers are Sandra Schmelly and John Shields. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.